This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, the multi-level marketing of LuLaRoe. All right, let's start the show. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. So I've noticed something. A lot of the TV I've been consuming recently, the TV that's really hooked me, all these shows have at least one thing in common. They all offer a critique, in one way or another, of capitalism. Squid Game, the most popular Netflix show ever. It is all about the lengths people will go to when they experience horrible debt and dead-end jobs. The worst of capitalism. The White Lotus and Succession, those shows mock the rich and make the case that too much money can make you an awful person. Look, here's the thing about being rich, okay? It's like being a superhero, only better. You get to do what you want. The authorities can't really touch you. You get to wear a costume, but it's designed by Armani. And there's this other one that I cannot stop thinking about. Lula Rich. This one is a documentary all about a multi-level marketing scheme where mostly stay-at-home moms sell really weird-looking leggings. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder, and some people really want to wear, like, jack-o'-lanterns on their leggings. And that's, you know, that's okay. That's Meg Connolly. She's a women's work and economic justice writer. And this week, Meg and I talked about the Amazon Prime series Lula Rich, which is all about this business, Lula Row. LuLaRoe convinced a lot of people to sell really loud colored tights from their homes. Until the whole thing just blew up. Meg and I talked about LuLaRoe and how the working moms that got into selling jack-o'-lantern leggings, they often went into debt in the process. And we talked about how this series, Lula Rich, it was all about how the dreams of capitalism, wealth and work-life balance, for instance, those dreams can make people fall for some pretty ridiculous schemes. To be clear here, multi-level marketing has been around for a while. LuLaRoe did not invent that. Think Amway, Mary Kay, etc. But some data indicates that MLMs are actually growing during the pandemic. We should start with just defining what an MLM is, right? It means multi-level marketing, which is not technically a pyramid scheme, but I want you to define both and tell us where LuLaRoe sat within that. Okay, so a pyramid scheme is you're just selling the opportunity to make money. If 10 people give me, you know, $10 and then 10 people give you $10 and then eventually it like forms an actual pyramid shape and the people at the top make a lot of money because they get a cut of each of, you know, the $10 contributions and then the people at the the bottom, you know, make nothing because eventually you run out of people who are willing to... um, To be recruited. (laughs) ...have the opportunity to make money, right? So an MLM is not technically a pyramid scheme, but it operates with the same... It's the same thing business model. It's just with a product. And so with LuLaRoe, the product was leggings, but the way that you made money was selling people on the opportunity to sell those leggings. And so, you know, they talk about this in the documentary Lula Rich, but most people were making most of their bonuses, like the majority of their compensation from LuLaRoe 
on the people that they signed, the bonuses they got from signing people to sell LuLaRoe. And this is the thing that was really interesting and the thing that seemed pretty insidious. So, like, they're telling you, you can sell these tights. Everyone wants to buy them, but... To start up, you need to give us like $5,000. And then from that $5,000, the person who recruited you gets a cut. Uh, but then you get a box of like hundreds of pairs of leggings and you just got to sell, <laughs> right? And you had to get in line to invest because so many people wanted to buy the inventory. But you would be on a waiting list anywhere from 90 to 100 days. So we literally had these women waiting for our calls. These are people spending anywhere from five grand to 10 grand for some leggings. And you know, a lot of these women were selling like, breast milk to be able to afford. And they were kind of urged by folks in LuLaRoe to consider doing that. Right. Like, just take out a second mortgage, sell your breast milk. But the thing is, is like, that's what we're told in America, right? Like, it costs money to make money. And if you are a, um, stay-at-home mom let me tell you like nobody's like willing to like give you capital to like start a business like you're gonna have to sell your breast milk right and so so they did that and then they waited and waited for the leggings and you know in the documentary there's one woman who talks about painting a bedroom in her house because she's gonna set that up as her like LuLaRoe store and it kind of broke my heart because probably the last time she did that was like for a nursery for her kids I cleaned out a room in the house and I painted it I moved all the stuff out of my one son's bedroom. I turned our nursery into a Lula room. Care work is work. You know, like, we need wages for housework, but of course we don't have that in America. And so the way that she was able to try and make her house productive in a way that was, like, Mm -hmm. economically recognized in our country was by bringing the leggings. The symbol is, I mean, like, it's just really troubling symbolism. Right, I work, you know, I I have been a stay-at-home mom. I think all moms are working moms, but now I'm like a traditionally working mom. A lot of these women in the MLM and in the documentary, they seemed to really want to do primarily the work of caring for their children. But because we don't recognize that as actual work and we don't pay for it, They were trying to find a way to do both. Now, that's not all the women. A lot of them did want careers and hadn't, you know, had the opportunity or... um, So I think that you have a spectrum of needs. So, yeah. Who was the typical LuLaRoe seller? The typical LuLaRoe seller was white, tended to be middle class. Mm -hmm. They were active online. They were active on social media. And a lot of them were stay-at-home moms, right? A lot of them were stay-at-home moms. The person who started LuLaRoe, the couple, they are Mormon. And so a lot of the people initially involved in LuLaRoe were Mormon. So, I mean, perhaps the most compelling part of the series Lula Rich is the character study of the two founders of LuLaRoe. They're quite something. Tell our listeners who they are. They are quite something. So I actually knew them. I grew up in Southern California in the same originally congregation and then kind of in the same religious community as Deanne Stidham and Mark Stidham. I actually went to one of Deanne's, she did dress parties when I was little. I would invite all my friends and I'd do it at my house, show some dresses and people come shop, buy it and go. 
And, you know, it was the 90s, so it's, like, these, like, velvet-topped dresses with, like, yeah. kind of poofy skirts. Like, I yeah. wanted one. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm like, you pair that with some, like, white little socks and black Mary Janes, and, like, you are in business. But my mom was like, no way. We're not buying anything from this woman. Like, my mom did not uh, feel comfortable. Yeah. She said, you know, even as a child, she'd be like, she's always trying to sell you something. She called me out of the blue, wanted to buy a skirt. I said, you know, this is a really great opportunity for you to make money. This is what LuLaRoe and what she was so good at. And they kind of alluded to this in the show. They realized that stay-at-home moms were this untapped resource. If you want to create an incredible wealth, identify an underutilized resource. And you know what? There is an underutilized resource of stay-at-home moms. And they have people weren't valuing their work. People weren't seeing right. them. They weren't able to have nine to fives because of the kids. And so right. this was a workforce of folks that were really qualified and can do lots of things because doing parenthood is a lot of different jobs at once. And they said, oh, let's get them, right? And so the whole PR pitch of LuLaRoe is this is not sinister. This isn't a scam. We're giving opportunities to a certain kind of woman that never gets them. And right. that kind of message becomes so successful. I mean, LuLaRoe expands almost exponentially. And by the middle of the last decade, it's kind of everywhere, huh? Yeah. So it it really does go bonkers. And these women have um, bought into it, like literally and figuratively. And they're selling each other on it because when you are in an oppressive system often you're the victim but you're also the victimizer right Mm. and so there's a part in the documentary where they're showing one of these cruises they go on like they start going on cruises and the moms are having like this big white mom dance party which is (laughs) you know about as awkward as you can imagine there's one part like in the corner of the screen you see a mom holding her baby and dancing at the dance party and again i'm trying to think in America, of a work environment where well, you, could you could go to a that. conference and break down with a baby, right? I mean, that is... That is the dream. That is a work-life balance dream. And like LuLaRoe was offering that. Yeah, or at least pretending to, right? Yeah. Coming up, the downfall of LuLaRoe. And who is actually at the bottom of the pyramid? This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Hulu. 
Dive into the chilling new Hulu original series, Under the Bridge, the riveting adaptation of the acclaimed true crime book. Based on shocking true events, Under the Bridge tells the haunting story of a murder that lays bare a small community's darkest secrets. Go deep into the hidden world of the town's tormented teenagers as detectives race to solve the sinister crime. Starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone, Under the Bridge is now streaming with new episodes Wednesdays, only on Hulu. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So, The work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. By the end, LuLaRoe is falling apart. They kind of grow too quickly, and the leggings get worse and crazier as time goes on. They end up arriving at people's doors, moldy and smelly and wet. There are too many people selling too many tights. The markets are saturated. The company begins to get sued. It really falls apart kind of astronomically. How epic was that fall of LuLaRoe? Because it seemed like from me watching, it was insane. I remember watching uh, LuLaRoe disintegrate in real time. You know, it's like happening around 2017. And what's interesting is a lot of MLMs start falling apart because the market has become too saturated and people are no longer buying in. Like there Mm. are not enough people to form like the next bottom layer of the pyramid, right? Mm. LuLaRoe starts falling apart before that. LuLaRoe Mm. starts falling apart because their leggings start falling apart. (laughs) Like literally like tearing on people's legs. Like literally start tearing... So that's interesting because that reflects um, a development that they don't talk about at all in the documentary, which is like the actual bottom of any MLM pyramid, the manufacturing. Yeah. And those weren't white middle class moms. These are not white middle class moms. We're not talking about the bottom of that pyramid because we don't want to. Because acknowledging that would mean acknowledging a lot of other things about America. But the leggings start disintegrating. And, you know, study after study shows that when the quality of product becomes worse, that directly corresponds to a worsening of conditions for the people making the product. Mm. And then the company briefly institutes this return policy. Then they're like, oh, sorry, can't do it anymore because everyone wanted to send all the tights back. Because everybody's trying to get their money back. And then people start talking about class action lawsuits. So then in spite of all of this crazy, Lula Rich does not go away. They're sued by, I think, Washington State, among others. People leave the company in droves. The reputation of the leggings themselves is in the garbage. But Lula Rowe still exists. What is it about America and our culture that keeps us so wedded to MLMs? 
you know, MLMs are not going to go away until we make America less pyramid-shaped. And I want to stop you there and have you define what you mean when you say that America's pyramid-shaped. We can talk about how disgusting pyramid schemes are and we can, you know, laugh at white suburban moms for um, falling for the LuLaRoe legging thing all we want, but they fall for it because it looks like the market sphere, right? Like it looks like America. America has a very narrow top that the only way you can get to it is by just hustling, like hustle culture, right? Like hustling. Yes. Yeah, totally. Like selling people on opportunity is the American dream. Mm. Like that's literally what the American dream does. And, you know, they didn't discuss it in Lula Rich. You know, the the cultural commentary in Lula Rich was basically like, these women, they're overeducated and they're in the home and they have nothing to do, but they feel like they have to stay in the home. And so then this MLM comes in and they, they think it's a good opportunity, but they're idiots. Really, they should, you know, leave the home and do some real work. But the work of the home has dignity and importance and... We build our careers on the underpaid labor of people within our homes, right? Like we say like the work of the home is not liberating, does not fulfill us. And then we hire women to work in our homes for way too little money, often women of color. And then we build on top of their labor. Mm. Like that is. That's a pyramid scheme when you talk about it like that. It's a you know, pyramid yeah. scheme. I mean, so, okay. So I am hearing you say that. MLMs are so appealing because a lot of the very central ideas to American capitalism are MLM-esque and pull on the same heartstrings. If that is the case, and I'm guessing you think that should change, there just has to be a level of truth-telling about our economy and what it is. I think that one of the positive developments of the pandemic was as everyone had to really exist in this strange space We had time to just reconsider holistically our relationship to work. And a lot of folks said to themselves, I'm working too much for not enough money and I'm tired. But I wonder what sitting with our relationship to work even more would feel like and look like. And if we could begin to address some of these things that you speak of, you know, this idea that there are all of these kind of pyramids that we exist in and there are folks on top and there are folks on the bottom. You're just absolutely right. You know, when the pandemic happened, some of us are at home, not all of us, but as some of us were home, I hoped we would start to understand that the home sphere and the market sphere are not separate. Like it's not two spheres. It's really warp and weft, right? Mm. We're all woven together. Mm. What ended up happening was we... We took that concept of separate spheres and we brought it like into the house with us, with our remote work. And then we just let it split the house in half. I mean, like (laughs) millions of women had to drop out of the workforce, right? Because we weren't willing to um, rethink the way that we've structured the home and the economy as existing apart from one another. Well, I, I will say... I'm excited about our current moment because a lot of people seem to be ready to question a lot of things. And that's where change starts. So I hope. That's true. That's true. Meg, will you stick around and uh, play a game with me? Yeah, absolutely. Up next, we play a game of Who Said That? Stick around. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, 
and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality, so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. Don't settle. Find love at first drive. Start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Homes.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. In this country... Some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders, and we're about to play my favorite game, who said that? Who said that? Who said that? I've got two amazing contestants here this week, and they both happen to know each other. They're friends, even, which makes it even more fun for the competition. Uh, both of you, tell us who you are. Okay, so I'm Mae Conley. I'm a writer, and I'm so happy to be here, and I'm so nervous because um, <laughs> I haven't been paying enough attention this week. Okay, okay. <laughs> To the culture. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. And I am Janon Graham-Russell, and I also have not been paying attention. I like to think that I'm, you know, pop culture savvy, but I am also ready to be embarrassed today. So let's go for it. (laughs) (laughs) So when you are not playing Who Said That with me, what's your day job, Janon? So my day job is I'm a Harvard PhD candidate and also a Mormon Studies Fellow at the University of Utah. So you two are friends. You kind of... Uh, operate in the same spheres of conversation, talking about Mormonism and family and all those good things. Uh, I want to say for this game, leave your friendship and your connection behind. If you are your mortal enemies, you are competing I'm against the you. other. <laughs> that can only be one. <laughs> so this game is really simple. I share a quote from the week of news, and you got to tell me who said it. I'll give you a lot of clues, but there are no buzzers and there are no timers. Just yell out the answer whenever you have it. Okay? Okay. Gotcha. Let's do it. Here's the first quote. It came from uh, a particular 
social media platform this week. Just name the platform. The quote is, hello, literally everyone. Twitter. Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy. It was Twitter. Oh, no. <laughs> so that tweet came from the official Twitter account this week yes. because when Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp went down for several hours on Monday, Twitter was like, oh, we're still here. <laughs> and did you see all the responses beneath it? It was like so dystopian because it was like McDonald's, like every brand just kind of like riffing oh, with God. each other with Twitter. Uh, it was so upsetting. I was like, this is the bad place. Yeah. Yeah. How did y'all survive the great shutdown on Monday when you really couldn't post to Insta or like gossip on WhatsApp? Oh, it was great. I mean, the clouds opened up, the, the <laughs> sun shined through. Like, I just felt like, you know, we talk about, you know, just it, I was at peace. It was a peaceful time. I will say I was surprised by how much it affected me. Like, I didn't mind Facebook being out. I don't really use Facebook at all. Yeah. But Instagram, I probably find myself refreshing and looking every half hour. So oh, it was really? a hard day. What's crazy, though, with this whole thing, so, like, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, it's all part of the same company. Um, and in spite of, you know, us joking about not being able to post selfies and such, you know, WhatsApp in many parts of the world is a primary mm-hmm. means of communication. So it was yeah. a big deal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, anyway, Facebook said that the outage was due to changes in its infrastructure that coordinates traffic between its data centers. All that to say they eventually had to send a team of people to a physical data center in Santa Clara, California, to reset the server computers. Y'all, they had to turn it off and then turn it back on again. So I love how you say that as like, like it was like middle school gossip. Like, did you hear what she said? Like, that's, I I just, (laughs) I'm just loving this conversation because that's, I mean, that's what happened. And it's just, it's wild. I'm like imagining Mark Zuckerberg blowing in the video game cartridge (laughs) and then trying again. I kept like, you know, the scene in Jurassic Park where they have to like, go get past the raptors to turn it off and turn it back on again, (laughs) like the switchboard or whatever. Like, I kept imagining that. Mr. Hammond, I think we're back in business. (laughs) Yeah, it might as well be Jurassic Park. It's about that hostile. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who got that point? (laughs) Me. It's my only point, I'm sure, so I'm claiming it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, this one's totally crazy. Totally, totally crazy. I think you're aware that I donated my kidney this oh. summer, right? <laughs> uh, um, Yell it out. Just, yeah, just say it's, something. It's the bad art friend. Oh. Yes, it's the bad art friend. Did y'all Wait. both see this story? Okay, could you bear to read it? I got like two paragraphs in and then I had to stop. Janan, did you read it? I did not. I saw the headline and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go live my life today. That's good. (laughs) That was the right, like, that was the right choice. It's like. Well, uh, because they pay me to study stupid. I read the whole thing (laughs) and it's all up in the discourse. (laughs) So that quote about the kidney donation, that comes from Don Dorland. Uh, She was one of two main characters in this story this week from the New York Times magazine called Who is a Bad Art Friend? And long story short, this piece takes part in this writer's community. A lot of writers who write together and write apart and are navigating the literary world. Um, One of the writers, Don Dorland, she gave a kidney to a stranger and then began to post about it on Facebook. She even shared the letter she would send to the stranger who got her kidney. 
and a lot of other writers that knew her thought it seemed pretty self-centered and Uh. obnoxious. Eventually, another writer uses part of the language of that kidney letter in a short story that seems to be mocking a fictitious Don Mm. Dorland. Eventually, they both sue each other. Uh, Group chats are unveiled during the course of these court proceedings. And Don Dorlin ends up seeing all the other writers kind of talking smack about her in the group chain. Uh, It was all a mess. Drama. Let me tell you, though, I was popping the popcorn. The story was good. At first, I was like, why is the New York Times covering this? And then I was like, man, I'm so glad the New York Times is covering this. Well, and like what's crazy is as soon as I finished reading the piece, I was like, oh, this has to be a movie. And I was like, who plays who in the movie? I feel I think one of them has to be Jennifer Lawrence. I just I see her as this very dramatic (laughs) character and just really, you know, just getting really into that role. I totally like that. Who else could y'all see? I could see Mm -hmm. Rosamund Pike Mm -hmm. as a kidney donor. Just a really uptight, very uptight woman. Yeah, I... uh... Like, just the thought of this, like, becoming a movie has, like, sent me into such a spiral. <laughs> this discourse has lasted so much longer than I expected. If yeah. it became a movie and it, like, there was more discourse around it, I'm not sure I'd... Ser- like, that might be the end. <laughs> well, I tell you what. I will watch the movie. I'll watch the miniseries. I'll watch the documentary. And I hope they find some way to put Nicole Kidman in it because Nicole Kidman. Yes. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, yeah that make- that'd be good. All right. Last quote for all the marbles. This one, oof, this one's rough. Guess which celebrity said this? Famous singer. Here we go. Quote, to clear things up, we pooped once together and we laughed and said never again. But he will hang out with me if I'm poop emojiing because we soulmates and I legit miss him when I'm away from him. And we pee together, obvi. Okay. <laughs> uh, is is there a lifeline that we can get with this one? Yeah. <laughs> I will I will name the title of her most famous song. Okay. Which is all about that bass. Oh, Megan Trainer. Yes. Oh, yeah. Megan Trainer. Yes. Okay. Wow. Did y'all see this story? Either of you? I did not see this. How did I miss this? This is epic. So that tweet came from Megan Trainer on October 6th, and she was addressing some things that she had said on Nicole Byer's podcast, Why Won't You Date Me? She revealed to Nicole Byer and now to the whole world that in the home that she shares with her husband, Daryl Sabara, they have, wait for it, side-by-side toilets. No. Mm-mm. Yes. Oh, Mm-mm. no. Oh, no, boo-boo, no. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, it's, I, we're, mm. if we're on the topic of social media shutdown, like, this is, like, that's one of those times that Instagram, like, sh- social media, like, across the board yeah, should have shut, shut it down. down. Just, just shut yeah, it down. Just shut it down. Shut like, it, this should have, like, broke the algorithm and crashed all of the servers forever. <laughs> what? Yeah, what they have like, side-by-side toilets. Like, the people, like, building the house, like, installing the toilet, like, were they like, what? What is happening? I just love, like, I just love, like, imagining the first call to a contractor. Yes! Megan and her husband, Daryl, are like, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. We want them together. You want what? No, we want them together. Like, how far? <laughs> uh, four feet apart, but, like, together. In the same yeah, room? like. Yeah, together. Like, are they close enough so that you can, like, hold hands? 
Are they like, like how do you decide the distance between two side by side toilets? Like, what do, what do they you, share one toilet paper roll for? or are there two? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. All the, a lot of questions. Questions, lots yeah, of I'm, questions. I'm in radical transparency in marriage, um, but like that is a step. That is something else. How much would y'all? Okay, wait, wait, okay. I guess what would it take? Money, gifts, service, what would it take to get y'all to agree with having a side-by-side toilet with your partner? Um, uh, w- would we have to actually use it? I mean, I guess you could build it and give me something, but I never... Like, Is there a bidet? Like, what kind of toilets are we talking about? My colleague Janae says that she would need her partner to donate their kidney to recruit <laughs> such a thing. So good. Honestly, Honestly, okay. Right, I'm not even right. sure then. I, like, I'm going to be honest. Yeah. Like, I'm a bad... I'm the bad art friend because... I would probably just never be able to use the restroom. Like, I would become severely ill. <laughs> yeah, and, like, just like, staring at each other. Like, do you stare? Oh like, what God. do you look at? Like, oh, <laughs> that's true, though. Side-by-side's better than two toilets facing each other, probably. Now My editor that just way. said it's like the poop bathroom version of Indecent Proposal. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> God. No. But I just, who oh. plays who in the side-by-side toilet movie? That's the question. Oh, Bradley Cooper oh. and Lady Gaga. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm going to go to the official scorekeepers for a tally. Do we have a winner? I think I know, but I always want to check and make sure. Meg, I think it was you. Dreams came true today. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be able to like <laughs> look my family in the face, and you know, I'm, I'm bringing, I'm bringing, I'm bringing the trophy home. They're going to be really proud of me. I'm really excited. Wow. wow. <laughs> Janan, how are you feeling right now? Are you okay? You know what? I I couldn't have lost to a better person. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look it's at okay. Susan Lucci. So <laughs> humble, so kind, so gracious. Hey, it's the Mormon. It's the Mormon in me, so. Thanks again to Meg Conley and Janan Graham-Russell. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, Sam. This is Kim in Cincinnati. And the best thing that happened to me this week is that my 16-year-old daughter, Lena, just had her last chemo treatment. She was diagnosed in December of 2020 and has endured a really brutal regimen of chemo and radiation. She still has a ways to go in her recovery. But watching her walk out of the hospital and ring the bell for her last treatment is the best part of our whole family's week. Hi, Sam. This is Rachel from Pittsburgh. Hi, Sam. My name is Adina, and I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Megan from Lexington, Kentucky. Hey, Sam. This is Lee from Encinitas. I was calling to tell you about the best part of my week, which was when my 21-month-old son, who has decided to enter the terrible twos six months early, came up to me, gave me a big hug, patted me on the back, and said, mine. And this week... For the first time in 579 days, I got to go back to work in a Broadway theater. I work in the wardrobe department and I've been unemployed since March 4th, 2020. It was so exciting to be back, to see everyone behind their masks and to feel the energy that moves through. And the best thing that happened to me this week just happened and that is that the Kentucky Wildcats just beat the Florida Gators at home for the first time since 1986, which is the year before I was born. So it's the first time that's happened in my lifetime. Go Cats, woo! I am organizing my second ever 
event involving local makers and I got 30 vendors lined up in about 48 hours and I didn't realize I had that ability or those amazing connections. I have to share this really sweet moment that happened yesterday. I was out with a friend. We were getting a drink at a little bar that's down the street and um, she had left to use uh, the restroom and I was practicing a dance piece that I'm learning. I'm part of a contemporary dance company and I have rehearsal today and I had pulled up the video and I was just kind of reviewing it in my mind. And while I was doing that, this woman comes up to me and just says, I've been watching you and I love what you're doing and it's so beautiful. And how do I see you perform? And it just made my day. <laughs> I, you know, you don't get compliments like that every day. So, you know, it's a reminder to just say something nice to a stranger. It can really make a difference. I love the show. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye. Love your show. Bye. Thanks again to all those listeners you heard there. Kim, Rachel, Katie, Adina, Megan, and Lee. Listeners, don't forget you can share the best part of your week at any point throughout any week. We still love to hear from you. Just record yourself and then send us a voice memo via email. samsanders at npr.org. That's samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week's episode of It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Liam McBain, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our intern is Nathan Pugh. Welcome, Nathan. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman, and our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grunvin. All right, listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. It's a high-stakes election year, so it's not enough to just follow along. You need to understand what's happening so you are fully informed come November. Every weekday on the NPR Politics Podcast, our political reporters break down important stories and backstories from the campaign trail so you understand why it matters to you. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.